If there's such a thing as a geek origin story, Superman has always been the star of mine. He was my first movie hero. He was my first comic book. He was my first TV series. His movies were the first ones I ever obsessed over, learning about their productions and who's writing them and who's directing them and all the ins and outs that go into creating these types of movies. And his last solo movie, Man of Steel, is basically the reason I got into blogging and podcasting to begin with nearly seven years ago. And that's what makes today so special, because something very unexpected happened last Friday, and I'm excited to share it with you. The Fanboy, episode 116. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 116 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? So yeah, folks, it happened. It finally happened. It took seven viewings across seven years, but this past Friday, when I sat down and watched Man of Steel, introducing it to my wife and kids for the first time ever, I loved that movie. Almost unabashedly loved it. It was a very weird sort of night and day response. And that's the thing. I've never hated the movie. Anyone who's listened to me over the years or read any of my writings know that there's a great deal about Man of Steel that I adore, that I treasure. But then there were things during the final hour and change that turned me off. And it always made my feelings about the movie very complicated because it always felt like, wow, this is really close to being like the perfect Superman movie. But there are some key things that just completely fly in the face of everything I feel about this mythology, or even just in terms of the execution of this story. I felt like certain things happened in the third act that totally betrayed the first hour and change of amazing, mythical, grandiose Superman storytelling. So I went into this viewing that, you know, on Friday, basically hoping, you know, I hope my kids like it more than I did. I have a feeling my wife, who's a lot less hard on these movies than I am, is going to love it. I mean, she basically avoided it these last seven years because she's heard me bitch and moan and complain about certain things. So she was like not even that excited about it. And it's kind of funny. I kind of, you know, I used another movie to explain to her why she should give this a chance. I used Star Wars The Last Jedi to sort of make the case for why she should give this a chance. Because when we saw that movie, we walked out of the theater and she was over the moon. She loved it. She thought it was an instant Star Wars classic. She was obsessed with it. And for the whole ride home, I was pissing all over that movie. I was not feeling it. I wasn't happy. There were things that as a fan just completely rubbed me the wrong way. And she remembers saying, like, I just, I can't relate. I don't know what movie you saw that you feel this strongly against it. That was great. 
So on Friday, before starting the movie, because she had some apprehensiveness to it, she hadn't quite signed off on that being the Friday night movie night movie, because we do this every week ever since the pandemic began. And usually there's a pretty good consensus, but she was a little resistant about Man of Steel because of me. So I told her, I'm like, you know what, if I'm being honest, I have a very strong feeling that this is going to be another The Last Jedi situation where you're going to adore it and you're not going to understand what my issues are. So I sort of set the table that way and my wife and my kids came into it totally fresh. I made sure they never knew what my complicated feelings for Man of Steel were. I just presented them with, hey, guys, so you guys have met one version of Superman, actually a few now. You've met the animated series and you've met the Christopher Reeve version and you've even seen Brandon Ralph do a variation of the Reeve version. So now here is another all new Superman, new storytellers. You have to act like nothing else that happened before happened. This isn't going to have that theme that you guys are always humming when you think of Superman. This is completely its own thing. So I kind of basically just kind of set the table there so that my kids can approach it with an open mind. I gave my wife sort of that, 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 that perspective of like, I actually think you are going to love this and you're not going to get why I've been complaining since June of 2013. <laughs> so going into it with that mindset, I'm sitting there on the couch, you know, we turn off all the lights, we have the popcorn, we put the sound up, we have my my 65-inch, and, you know, it, we're there in our little personal Robles movie theater, and all I know is, as the movie is unfolding and as the story's being told, I'm finding myself the most invested I've ever been. All of a sudden, like I'm, I, it felt like I'd never seen the movie. It felt like that first time when I caught a midnight showing of it the night before its premiere back in 2013. It felt like an, a, like a new experience. And there was a part of me questioning it. I'm like, what's going on with me right now? I'm much like I'm, I'm, I'm almost too into this. I've seen this movie six other times. Why does this feel so new to me? And then... I, it became official that this was going to be a very different experience when the first flight sequence came on. Because that's a sequence that I've always, you know, I've always enjoyed. I've always enjoyed the visuals. I've always enjoyed the idea of it. But I, def I definitely didn't love it the way most people do. Like, you know, when people who talk about Man of Steel and people who love Man of Steel talk about first flight to them it's this like religious experience you know and a lot of people put that there next to like the wonder woman in no man's land sequence from the wonder woman movie you know it's one of these like iconic powerful superhero moments and i've never really been able to relate to that perspective on it i've always dug it but it never like moved me in any kind of special way guys girls this time, when I watched First Flight, I started sobbing. <laughs> I started sobbing, like, uncontrollably. Where, like, I had to try to, like, control myself because I'm like, I don't, I can't have my kids see me fall apart. Like, they're going to want to, like, pause the movie and be like, Dad, are you okay? Do we have to go to a hospital? Are you all right? Because I was, like, having this private moment where all of a sudden, like, 
the 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 magic of the moment seeing superman fly and 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 the, the, the smile on his face and him zooming all over the earth and it was like i was i was that 4-year-old kid back in 87 seeing superman fly on the big screen again suddenly it was like whoa there's superman and the power of what jor-el had to say leading up to that and Henry Cavill's portrayal of it and the majestic cinematography and visuals that Zack Snyder gave it. I was just, I was bawling uncontrollably. And it was like this, it almost felt like pent up. It almost felt like on some level for the last seven years, it's like I've wanted to cry during that moment. But now it finally came out. The levees broke and I felt all of this like happy, emotional euphoria watching Superman fly. And maybe it was made a little bit more emotional knowing that like this unfortunately didn't lead to more stories for this Superman. You know, we got BVS, which was more of a setup of Justice League and in, in many ways a, a, a Batman story. Then we got Justice League, which as we know, the theatrical cut very much altered whatever that was originally going to be. So we've never gotten to really see this Superman fly to those heights since First Flight. So I think that might have added a little extra gravitas to the moment. All I know is whatever it was, I was a sobbing mess during that scene and somehow my kids like didn't notice it or maybe they did and they just pretended like dad's going through something and we gotta i don't want to deal with that right now i don't know what it was but they left me alone as i'm sobbing in the corner and then the next big set piece was the jonathan kent tornado sacrifice and this was pretty special because my daughter i think she could sense you know she's nine She's very whip smart, this kid. She's clever and she can she can break down a story to very, very in very great detail already. Even at this young age, she she digests and internalizes things in a very sort of mature way. And I think she could tell something's about to happen to Clark's dad, because as soon as the tornado arrives, she like crawled across the bed, uh, the, the bed, crawled across the couch and grabbed my arm and put it around her and cuddled herself under my arm, kind of grabbing around my waist, watching very intently and in a very concerned way. And I there, like in full father mode now, holding my little girl, a moment that, or, or, or an element that had completely sort of flown over my head the first seven, the first six times suddenly hit me like a ton of bricks. Seeing Jonathan Kent race into danger to save lives, knowing that his son could do all of this on his own in a much more fast and efficient way, but choosing to protect his son, choosing to go, listen, I know he can do this, but I don't know what the world will do to my boy if they see him do this. Because he knows what a cold, hard, cynical place this world can be. So knowing all of that, he runs into danger, saving people, and has Clark and Martha go hide under a bridge. The power of that just caved in on me. Because on top of that, I've always loved the idea that Kal-El's upbringing, that Clark's upbringing in Smallville 
is really what inspired him to be who he was, that he wasn't just genetically predisposed to be this great guy, but that rather that John and Martha instilled certain values in him. And watching that scene and seeing John be such a hero, it suddenly finally just hit me, pow, right in the face. This is where Clark learned to be that guy who can't stand on the sidelines. This is where Clark, this version of Clark, got that, that inspiration to be the person who runs into danger. Because that's what his dad did. And thinking about it more from Jonathan's perspective. Here he is in that scene. Clark just said, you're not my real dad. And then, at a moment's notice, he shows him nothing but a father's love by protecting him and sacrificing himself so that they and others can live. It was, um, it was amazing. And holding my little girl during that scene really kind of helped all of it sort of sink in all at once. The power of that moment. Because it's a moment I've had mixed feelings on. The first time, the first few times I saw it, it was emotional. But then at some point, I started kind of thinking too hard about it and thinking, man, Clark would never just let his dad die. That seems silly. And that's something I've noticed, too, as I've had some time to think about the movie uh, in the past week since my sort of 180, is that a lot of the things that, that, that irk me are these like isolated moments that when you think about them on their own, when you're not watching the movie, when you're on your own time, thinking about certain isolated moments, it's easy to pick them apart and to question the logic of them and to sort of be like, oh man, that ruins the whole movie for me. But when you're actually in the movie and just watching the moments happen as they're supposed to happen in the context with which they're supposed to happen, everything lands much differently. And that's how this felt. It felt like after years of scrutinizing that scene and hearing other people scrutinize that scene, I had sort of soured on it. But this time, watching that movie in this very sort of dedicated, concentrated way with my family last week, I really, like, none of those other dissections, none of that nitpicking mattered. All the powerful moments hit me exactly the way they should. And the overall plot line of Jor-El sending Kal-El here to try to see if he can be a bridge between these two cultures. And that's why the whole Codex thing is important. Because originally I thought the Codex thing was really kind of a contrivance. But this time watching it, the, the poetic nature of it all really struck me as very powerful and helped me to enjoy the story even more. So even the Codex thing, which I usually saw as like a needless complication... Even that struck me as like, wow, what a great touch that is. I really kind of dig that. That that Cal that Krypton ultimately was destroyed by its hubris, by its pride, by its people not being open to new ideas or being able to admit that they were wrong. And that Jor-El was hoping that Kal-El, the first natural birth on Krypton, he would choose to be a bridge between societies and to kind of live up to Krypton's original ideals of creating a cohesive, coherent, peaceful universe where other, you know, the, uh, beings from different worlds can, can co-mingle and live together. So all of that 
just crashed in on me this time in a way that I almost didn't let it crash in on me the first few times. And even other little things like in the battle on Smallville, when Superman saves that soldier who falls out of the helicopter. Listen, I've always appreciated that moment. And I've always said that Man of Steel should have more of those moments in the third act. Those little moments where he goes to save a human amidst all the chaos. That those little moments would have made all the difference. But this time, it hit me much, much more powerfully. Because I connected it with the fact that he had just gotten shot by that same helicopter. You know, there's that sequence there where they're firing down and you see Kal-El, you see Superman lurch backward as he gets hit by a bullet seemingly in his own head. And yet seconds later, he flies forward to save that soldier. To me, the, the power, like that felt so Superman because Superman would know that these people aren't trying to hurt me. They don't know if I'm friend or foe. They just see these super-powered aliens destroying a small American town, and they're trying to wipe us out. It's nothing personal. And I still have to save them because their intentions are right. They're just trying to protect Earth. And that's what I'm here to do, too. So we're all on the same team, whether they realize it or not. So he saved that soldier, and that perfectly sets up later on when he, he steps out from behind that debris and the soldiers lower their guns. And Colonel Hardy says, this man is not our enemy. I mean, that landed. That landed real hard. <laughs> I'm going to try not to get emotional while talking about all this stuff. But it's really sort of powerful to me, too, as, a, as someone who's loved this mythology and these characters for as long as I have. To suddenly see these magical moments in a movie that I had once kind of been too cynical and hardened to let love. Um, it, it, feels, it feels very rewarding to now all of a sudden be like, wow, no, there's another great Superman story that I can watch now. That was handled with great care and great just artistry. And Man of Steel became that for me last Friday. Um, you know, and look, and, and I still have certain things that I wish were handled differently. I still think that there was way too much gratuitous uh, violence and destruction during the third act. I still think that the, the killing of Zod could have been built to in a much more emotionally powerful and dramatic and inevitable way. I still feel those things, but nowadays that stuff feels more like a minor nitpick than a deal breaker. So Man of Steel, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for all the years I dogged on that, on, on, on certain elements of that movie, because it really is a pretty special experience. And if anything, this makes me extra sort of sad about the fact that we're probably not going to see another solo outing for that Superman again because of where things went afterward. You know, in all of these years of dissecting and discussing the DCEU, I think, at least speaking for myself, I sort of forgot that that movie on its own was a pretty great start to something. And it's the stuff that came directly after it 
that I thought really pushed things in a direction that I really just stopped caring for. You know, I really thought BVS was really kind of where things took a whole sour step in the total wrong direction. And it'll be interesting because tonight's Friday. It's movie night again. And as soon as Man of Steel was over, I told the kids, all right. You know, but first I asked them. I just asked them just, you know, to be honest with me. What did you guys think? And they both said it was awesome. It was amazing. It was great. So I said, okay, well, guess what? There's a part two. And in the part two, there's Batman. And my son, like, what? Yeah. And, 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 and Wonder Woman. You know the Wonder Woman that we love? Because they've already seen the Wonder Woman movie a few times and they loved it. Well, this next movie is where we met that Wonder Woman for the first time. So this next movie is pretty special because Batman thinks Superman's a bad guy. And Superman thinks Batman's a bad guy. And it was great because explaining it this way, my kids were like, what? This sounds crazy. I'm like, I know, isn't that nuts? So the two of them don't like each other. So it's actually called Batman versus Superman. This like blew their minds. And yes, and so either way, we're watching that tonight. So I'm very intrigued to see how, how my next viewing of that movie goes. And I should note... It's going to be the ultimate edition because over the years I've made peace with the fact that the ultimate edition really is the best way to watch that movie and it does improve the overall experience. So I've already warned my family. I'm like, guess what? This sequel that you guys are now excited about, there's one little thing that you should know. It's three hours long. So tonight we're going to start it nice and early and then we're going to start it at like seven o'clock. So that, you know, we could be done at a quasi-reasonable hour and then put the kids to bed. But, yeah, we're going to see BVS tonight. And just backing up a little now, you know, when I think about the DCEU, though, for me, creatively, it was the detour after Man of Steel. Like, I really wanted to see more of what happens with this Clark Kent, with this Superman, with this story, now that his first day on the job is behind us, now that he's learned some unbelievable lessons, now, you know, I, I wanted to pick up from that last scene, that welcome to the planet scene. I want a sequel that basically starts from there. I want to see this Clark continuing to develop into the hero he's going to be. And unfortunately, you know, BVS wasn't that for me. And who knows? I'm going to walk into tonight with another open mind. I mean, I already do enjoy the Ultimate Edition. And I'm curious to see if my newfound um, respect and admiration for Man of Steel is going to add to my viewing of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice Ultimate Edition. So I'll be sure to let you guys know about that next week and to let you know if my kids ended up liking it and if my wife ended up liking it. You know, I am personally a little skeptical, just like I was skeptical when it came to Superman the movie about like, are they going to like this or is this going to be a little too old and dated? Are the special effects going to look a little fuzzy? Is this going to be kind of like, you know, is this going to go over like a fart in church? So, you know, and that ended up being a, a total home run in and of itself. I have similar reservations about showing them BVS. I'm not going to voice it to them. I'm going to let them have their own organic experience, but I'm just between you guys and I, I'm a little nervous that this is going to be where they go, 
I didn't really dig that, but we'll see. I've been wrong a bunch of times so far, so I'll see, uh, I'll see what happens with BVS, the ultimate edition, but just Henry Cavill as Superman with the right creative team is gold. And it's crazy to me that it's 2020 and there's not even really a legitimate conversation still about getting him another solo movie. I mean, what a freaking tragedy. So if you ask me, as a Superman fan, especially one that now appreciates all that Man of Steel was, it's just a tragedy that this guy never got to do more. He never got to really show what he could do in this role. Because what he did show us in Man of Steel, when the focus was solely on him, was just so good. So, so good. Oh, and, and another thing, before I change the subject from Man of Steel and move on... Another moment that really hit me this time that hadn't really before was, you know, right before the big battles begin in Smallville that end up in Metropolis and all that. Right before all of that, there's that flashback of Clark getting bullied and how he'd love to just hit those guys, but he shows enough restraint and him and Jonathan have that whole conversation about, you know, showing that restraint and what it is that he's here to do and all that sort of stuff. And to me now, that setting up the third act, I think, is one of the reasons why I didn't mind the third act as much this time. Because it really made that point very clear now, didn't it? Here's a guy with unbelievable abilities who's always had to restrain himself, who's always had to control himself and pull back and be the bigger man, because if he really let loose, he'd kill someone. And here he is now in this present situation, finally in a position where he could let loose the full force of his abilities on this invading force. And the thing that triggers him to do so is when they, they're attacking Martha. When he goes, you think you can attack my mother? Like that, you know, the flashback leading into that, I now, like, I mean, I always kind of got it. I always understood like, oh, I see. They're trying to show that, you know, we're finally going to see him unchained. Okay, great. So now we're going to get to see a bunch of, you know, you're going to see that Dragon Ball Z fight that we've been hearing about for years that, you know, for the fans who are dying to see Superman punch something, you know, this is just going to give them their excuse to enjoy him punching things. Yeah, it's always kind of been how it felt. But this time, Watching it, it didn't feel quite so forced and contrived. It felt like just a natural part of the story where we're about to see this Clark unleash the full breadth of his powers. And that's going to be unique and perhaps a little bit messy because here's someone who through 30 years has always been told, keep it quiet, keep it to yourself or else bad things will happen. And... I think that's what helped me enjoy the third act more, kind of giving it, you know, framing it in that context. It's really just the crazy, it, it's such a crazy feeling to feel that like I've had such kind of an aha moment when it comes to this movie, because I think it really shows to me at least that who you see a movie with matters. At least it does to me. 
You know, I'm the type of person who's always trying to be sort of aware of what everyone in the room is thinking and feeling. You know, it, it's 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 sometimes an exhausting thing. And for someone like me who suffers from uh, the people pleasing disease, uh, it can be it can be a lot. But I spend a lot of time kind of reading the room, checking the temperature of how everyone's enjoying a certain thing. And that sort of stuff seeps into my experience. And it's just interesting as I think back on the different people I've watched this movie with, I think each one has had their own sort of impact on my overall experience. You know, the first time I saw it was with a bunch of fellow geeks, people who were very similar to me, who perhaps weren't quite as passionate about Superman as I was, but they were still, you know, cut from a very similar cloth. People who love superhero movies and comic books who were invested in this story. So they were very much sort of like-minded people, even if not quite as extra as I tend to be. The second time I saw it was with my father's side of the family, which is a whole group of movie buffs who've been going to see movies together and analyzing them at dinner afterward for hours for the last, like, 50 years. You know, my dad's side of the family, it's all, you know, actors and, and, and you know, people who love the filmmaking process and great storytelling, people who saw the Reeve movies in theaters, when that all started back in 1978. So I went with like a hardened group of movie buffs who'd already seen this stuff before. And their reaction to it was not surprisingly far more critical of the movie than the previous group I'd seen it with. You know, when I saw it with my group of fellow geeks, I enjoyed it. I didn't love it. It was somewhere in the B's. It was like a B minus, a B or a B plus. It was somewhere in there. Then when I saw it with those people... And I heard what they had to say about it. And I really kind of had a hard time arguing with any of it because it was like, yeah, there were some, you know, the, the issues that I had with the third act really are a pretty big deal. And at least they were to that group of people. And it really kind of helped me kind of fall into that line of thinking even more so. And then the third time I saw it was with my mom. The same lady who took me to see Superman 4, my first movie. To me, what felt like the first movie I ever saw, because it's the first movie I remember seeing. The first time I ever sat and watched a two-hour movie and went on that whole journey that an audience should go through was for Superman 4. My mom brought me to that. And our shared Superman fandom was one of the things that helped kept that helped keep my love of the character alive through so many years, even when there were long droughts of movies, even where the, you know, when, when there wasn't a lot going on, you know, my mom and I had this shared love of Superman. So when I took her to see Man of Steel, it um, definitely impacted me very harshly when towards the somewhere in the middle of the third act, when it was just, you know, skyscrapers falling and all of this insane destruction, you know, when she turned to me and said, like whispered, like they ruined him. They killed Superman. And she meant it in terms of like, she doesn't like seeing him as this brute force, blunt force instrument. She likes him more as like the inspirational force for good that like, you know, that the, that the Christopher Reeve Superman was in the, in like, especially in the first movie where he doesn't even fight anybody. He just saves a lot of lives. You know, that's the type of Superman that she really loves. And me too. That's the Superman that I grew up on. But when she turned over to me 
and was like, they ruined him. That really kind of like, you know, it, it, it impacted me. Her experience impacted me. And also in the middle of that third act, when all the buildings are toppled and, and now we have Lois and Clark having that kiss in the middle of the huge empty crater of was of what was once downtown Metropolis. Um, and Jenny says, he saved us. My mom was like, saved what? What's left? <laughs> and, you know, you got to love her. My mom's a very sassy Cuban lady with very strong opinions. And uh, that totally seeped into my psyche as well, where it was just like, you know, if I had reservations about the level of, of, of destruction and how little Superman seemingly cared about it, my mom pointing that out really kind of cemented the hell out of that feeling. So what's interesting is when I saw it with my wife and kids, none of that baggage was there because they didn't have any of those, you know, um, preconceived notions about what this should be or what this could be. They just went for the ride. So I really kind of got to enjoy this movie in a very sort of fresh way because I was in there with three sets of fresh eyes and not just that, these are three people who are much easier to satisfy than I am. So I'm just curious if that's like a me thing or if that's a universal thing. That's why I brought all this up. Like, do you find that who you watch a movie with has some sort of direct impact on how you enjoy the movie. I'm just curious if that's like a universal thing or if it's really just me and, you know, my tendency to try to take the temperature of the room all the time, if that's just a me thing, you know, because listen, that, that element has helped, you know, it helps me professionally, but it can be exhausting as a movie fan. Cause when I say it helps me professionally, it helps me as a DJ, as a DJ, you have to have a very good sense of what the room is thinking and feeling and wanting so that you can shift the music and shift the energy of the party in the right direction. Because every crowd of people is different. It's a whole group of strangers. And every week, several times during that week, I have to go into a room filled with strangers and figure out how they feel so that I can best entertain them and get them to like a whole other level of celebration. So my, my desire to be in tune with everyone around me, uh, it suits me very well there, but I find it doesn't help me that much when it comes to movies. So that's just an observation I made about me. I'm curious if anyone else out there finds that, you know, if you're watching a movie with a bunch of people and they love it, you find that you have a very positive experience. If you're watching a movie with a bunch of people and they hate it, does that have an impact on your experience and how you look at that movie? Let me know. And, you know, maybe you don't want to tweet it to me. Maybe you're part of the uh, Revengers Lounge, Revenge of the Fans uh, group that we have on Facebook. Let me know there. Let me know there. I'm just curious because I know that for better or worse, the people I'm around when I'm watching a movie are going to have some sort of impact on my overall experience. And they're going to color and tint. And in some kind, in, in certain contexts, in certain situations, they're going to taint my opinions about a certain movie. 
But now we're going to change gears just a little bit because there is some new and interesting developments when it comes to Wonder Woman 1984. And this is all going to tie into something I've been discussing a lot these last few weeks and who a few of you sent in as a question or topic you want me to cover this week, which is going to the movies, right? That's something we've been talking about a lot, that in the age of COVID and the age of this pandemic, what's going on with movie theaters? Will the movie going experience ever be the way it was what are studios going to do about releasing their films? Are they going to do theatrical releases? Are they going to go straight to streamers? You know, that conversation has been something we've been having a lot these last few weeks. And this Wonder Woman 1984 update kind of sheds some light on things. And I want to just talk about it a little bit. Because right now, Variety is reporting that Warner Brothers is currently mulling over one of two options. One option is the one I brought up last week, which is simply to delay the film again, this time from Christmas Day 2020 to June of 2021, which essentially means it would just be a one-year delay from the original June release date it was going to have pre-pandemic. And I told you, I was totally on board with that. I'm like, may as well, let's just act like 2020 didn't happen. Let's just, you know, call, call it a mulligan or whatever you want to call it. And let's just do 2021 as if 2020 never happened, right? I said that. But the other option that Warner Brothers is looking towards is still releasing it on Christmas Day, but then after two weeks, releasing it on HBO Max, essentially giving it just a very limited theatrical run and then moving it directly over to HBO Max. And I already see people screaming on both sides of this issue. And I want to talk about it a little bit because I think, I think it's a little more nuanced than some of you want to consider it. And I think that there's two sides to this that are sort of fascinating to mull over. If you're someone who's following this story and trying to figure out, you know, what does this pandemic mean to the movies? And that's this. So one way to look at it is... Why do the HBO Max thing? Why do a limited run when you could just release it to hopefully its full potential in June of next year? You know, there, there's so much more money to be made that way. It's so much more of a cultural sort of pop culture event if it's in theaters. You know, wh wh why this race to get it onto HBO Max? People love Wonder Woman. They love the first movie. They will go see this in theaters. So let's just wait till next June, right? There's people who are just like, well, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to give it away, essentially, on a streamer when you could have the full shebang next June? And then there are the folks who say, no, that's perfect. You know, it makes perfect sense. Release it early. And this is the future of movies. And it is what it is. You know, right now, the, the, the limited theatrical release followed by the HBO, you know, whatever streaming service it ends up being for all these movies that are getting released this way, you know, that that model makes a lot of sense. But let's break that down a little bit. Because if you're Warner Brothers, if you're Warner Brothers, this is not an easy decision to make. Because it sounds easy. Sure, let's just delay it to next June. But what if COVID's not gone by then? What if the pandemic is still an issue? Because even though there are rumors of a vaccine that will start shipping soon, that doesn't mean that A, everyone's going to get it. 
and B, that society is going to be prepared to return to normal within the next seven months, because June is only about seven and a half months away, people. So what assurances does Warner Brothers have that delaying the movie until June will help? Because at this point, we don't know how many people are going to be rushing to go out to theaters, even with a vaccine. We don't know the impact on society just yet. And then what happens if you wait until June and no one sees it? And now not only does no one really see it in theaters, but since all of the promotion for the film primarily happened a year and a half prior, it doesn't even cause you know, create this huge avalanche of new subscribers for HBO Max. Because now it's just kind of like this movie we've been hearing about for years and years, and maybe the public has moved on by then. You know, right now you got to try to strike while the iron's hot. They've been promoting Wonder Woman 1984 since July of 2019. I'm pretty sure that's when like the first teaser came out, right? At Comic-Con 19, I'm pretty sure is the first time we got a look at Wonder Woman 84. So here we are in this, you know, we're, we're in this period of time here where the film has been thoroughly promoted. There have been billboards out. There have been TV spots out. There have been all, there's all kinds of information that's out there. So right now it behooves you, if you're a studio, release while the iron is hot. Strike while the iron is hot. And this movie is still top of mind. Because if you wait until June of next year, if you wait another seven and a half months and it ends up being a situation where it doesn't really cause any waves at theaters, then really now it's it's not going to arrive on HBO Max with a great deal of fanfare or hype. Whereas if you release it on Christmas Day, make it feel like a monumental holiday event. And then two weeks later, while it's still sort of riding that high... You let the rest of the world know, okay, for those of you who were scared to come out to theaters, now all you got to do is spend 15 bucks for your HBO Max subscription and you could see Wonder Woman straight from home. You know, so it's it, there, there's no real sort of easy way to decide which way to go here. I can see how the studio is in a very sort of tough spot. And I guess just we as fans have to understand that like this is not obvious there's not an obvious path to take here you wait till next june and sure you might get that huge theatrical rush and it might become another cultural event the way wonder woman did in 2017 when it was this huge you know it outperformed every box office expectation it did so much better than anything that had come before it that you know it could go that way but we currently live in a day and age where all of that stuff is anything but certain. So therefore, doing the December release with the January HBO Max arrival might actually be the best way to go. And I guess that now becomes a question I have for you guys. If it goes that way, if the only way, if Warner Brothers announces that they're going to do like a two-week limited release in theaters at the end of December and then give you the movie on HBO Max, what are you going to do? Are you going to rush out to see it in theaters or are you going to wait for HBO Max? Because remember, folks, I've been saying for all, ever since I've come back to doing this show on a weekly basis 
I've been telling you that the only way movie theaters are going to continue on past this pandemic is if we all go and support the movies that we want to see in theaters. If we actually show up, buy those tickets, buy the popcorn and candy and soda and make it worth the theater's while. That's the only way these theaters and the theatrical model as we know it is going to persist. So I'm just curious with you. If you have the option to watch Wonder Woman in theaters and then HBO Max two weeks later, what are you going to do? Because maybe that answer will be illuminating in terms of what the future for movie theaters even looks like. The next thing that I would like to touch on is some interesting developments from freaking Zack Snyder's Justice League. Every week, there's like, there's more stuff. You know, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Jared Leto. Then there was the news about Deathstroke. And then this week, Mr. Snyder puts out a tease. He, 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 uh, varied an image of Batman and Catwoman and mentioned that he once had plans for Batman and Catwoman, and that if he would have cast Catwoman, he was going to cast Carla Gugino. So that got a lot of people talking because, I mean, she she's a great actress and she would make a phenomenal Selena Kyle. But that got people wondering, like, is he going to try to incorporate that into Justice League? Because it's just interesting time. We know that he's in full swing production. He's doing additional photography. He's doing all this stuff for his version of Justice League right now. Why this sudden detour talking about Catwoman? And that got me thinking. You know, I, I went down a little sort of theory spiral on Twitter the other night. Thinking about, like, if this thing is really going to have Jared Leto's Joker, Joe Manganello's Deathstroke, and possibly some sort of allusion to Gugino's Catwoman, then that means that this Zack Snyder's Justice League miniseries event is one of two things. Or rather, this news is one of two things. This either means that this is going to be a very Batman-centric story, right? Because you can't just give all these characters like the you know short shrift. If you're going to bring in the Joker, and if you're going to bring in the guy who was originally part of the end scene sequence because he stands for, you know, Batman's future enemy. So if you're going to show his most classic enemy and the enemy you were building towards for the future, and you're going to make, you know, th th there's going to be a little bit fleshing out of what happened with the, de with the dead Robin in the DCEU. And you're going to mention something about Bruce's past relationship with Catwoman. That means that this is going to be another very Batman heavy experience, which I don't mind, by the way. But people argue that BVS was very Batman heavy. Right now, with all of these characters potentially being involved, this sounds to me like Zack Snyder's Justice League is going to do that again, where Batman really is kind of like the, the main character. Or they're not in there for that long. And what they're really doing is setting up a Ben Affleck Batman series. That's kind of the other way I see to make sense of all this. I, you know, like it, it's either going to be that Justice League is very Batman centric and possibly very bloated with outside elements, 
or it's not bloated at all, and those things are just going to be teased at for future movies. You know, so either way, I'm very curious to see which way this goes. And the more I think about it, and this was all part of the theory spiral, is that there is a fairly sort of obvious Batman arc in there somewhere, if all these characters are involved. Because if we're getting Zack Snyder's Justice League with a pair of iconic Bat villains in it and allusions to his tormented past, and then I am of the opinion that we're going to get the Ayer cut. You know, we're going to get David Ayer's Suicide Squad, and it's going to exist in the same canon as Zack Snyder's Justice League. This is, you know, this is my hunch. This is how I, this is what I think is going on. So if we're going to have Zack Snyder's Justice League in September of 2021, then I think we're very likely to get David Ayer's Suicide Squad at some point in 2022. And remember, that film in many ways was a direct sequel to BVS because it's directly connected to all of that canon. It's, it's directly connected to all of that story. And it involves Ben Affleck's Batman. You've got Jared Leto in there. So if Jared Leto is reprising Joker for Justice League, I don't think it's crazy to think that he could reprise it for David Ayer's Suicide Squad. Although, honestly, it doesn't sound like he'd even have to, right? Because Ayer and Leto have alluded to the fact that 90% of what he shot for Suicide Squad didn't make the movie. So I guess all they would really have to do is reintegrate all of the Joker scenes and, you know, Maybe that would be enough to flesh out whatever sort of dynamic he has with Ben Affleck's Batman. But then, in 2023, you have a Batman series. You know, you have Zack Snyder's Justice League to sort of imply certain things. You have David Ayer's Suicide Squad to flesh in certain other elements of this. So that in 2023, you could actually have the Batman story that this has all been building towards. That's just kind of, yeah, that's my fanboy wet dream right there. That is my thing that like, if that's how this all, you know, pans out, it would be a pretty phenomenal coup for Batman fans, for fans of that version of the DCEU. And it would really give HBO Max a very sort of unique selling point to fans where there's this whole sort of alternate DC Batman centric world that you could check out on HBO Max. And that's just something that I kind of wanted to put out there because, again, if we're going to have Leto's Joker and Manganello's Deathstroke and possibly Gugino's Catwoman, Gugino's Catwoman in Justice League, I don't think that there's any way that this is just a standalone event. I think this is setting up some other stuff. That's just me. And now before I get into some listener questions, I have a couple of quick hits. Just a couple of other quick topics I want to hit on. Because this week, uh, there were some very sizable changes when it comes to Fantastic Beasts 3, right? Because Johnny Depp was basically forcibly, uh, he was asked to quit, but was basically fired from his work as Grindelwald in, uh, in, in this franchise. And that's interesting because he had a pay or play deal. 
So that means that Johnny Depp is going to get paid his full Johnny Depp salary. And meanwhile, all he really ended up doing was I think he shot like one scene. There was an article that came out this week that he had shot very little. He had shot like one scene and now he's done. He's going home, never to be seen again as Grindelwald. And the only real reason I bring this up is because I love who they're replacing him with. You know, uh, Mads Mikkelsen. Mads Mikkelsen as Grindelwald, to me, suddenly makes me much more intrigued in this franchise, in this series of films. Because I really didn't care for the first two Fantastic Beasts movies. Um, and on, And part of it was Johnny Depp, and especially in that second one, like... Johnny, no matter what you think of him, and I'm not going to weigh in on the tabloid controversies. I'm not going to get into the him versus Amber Heard. I don't know enough about that situation to really feel like I can give any sort of decent opinion on it. And it's really kind of more of a TMZ story with this he said, she said, and who was abusive and who was abusive first and all that. Like, I, I'm not going to comment on that. But I will comment on the fact that Johnny Depp, as an actor, has really, over the course of the last 10 years, pissed away a lot of goodwill. You know, there was a time when Johnny Depp was seen as this, like, you know, one of the stars of the future, one of these these incredibly our generations, Pacino or Marlon Brando. You know, he had that sort of clout. And that's why it was such a big deal. When he got when he took the role of Jack Sparrow in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, because that was not like him. He was known more for doing like more independent, more stuff that was more artistically minded, more, you know, complicated, complex, more grown up sort of, you know, acting and movies and subject matter that, that Johnny Depp had sort of gone off the beaten path for most of his career. So when he took Jack Sparrow, it was like this big, whoa, they got Johnny Depp to agree to be in a big tentpole. Wow. But then little by little, like his whole career just kind of became about doing these kinds of movies, whether it was the Willy Wonka remake or those two Alice in Wonderland movies. Like it started becoming like, oh, here's Johnny Depp with some more crazy hair and some more crazy makeup and some other shtick he's invented to do his new quirky eccentric character. So to me, Grindelwald just became another one in a long line of here's Johnny Depp with crazy hair and makeup doing his sort of, you know, look how eccentric I am shtick. Whereas Mads Mikkelsen, Mads Mikkelsen is like legitimately creepy and dark and interest. He naturally brings a, a, an element with him to his characters that makes you sort of uneven. I mean, I remember I've been enamored by Mickelson ever since he played Le Chiffre in uh, Casino Royale in the first Daniel Craig James Bond movie. I thought, who is this guy? And he needs to be the villain in absolutely everything. So while I'm not going to comment on the Depp and all that sort of stuff controversy, I will just say that this recasting, I think, is only a good thing for the project. I think Mads Mikkelsen is going to bring a real, legitimate, organic level of menace to Grindelwald without all of the, you know, TMZ baggage and shenanigans and drama that Depp was going to bring to it. So I think Fantastic Beasts just got an amazing upgrade in this switch of actors. So whatever the circumstances may be that led to it, 
I think we as fans are going to win big with this recasting. And another thing where I think we're going to win big is if you're a fan of Dexter, you know that they're bringing Dexter back for like a bonus revival season. And there's one aspect of this that I've been wanting to like just mull over. And if you're not a Dexter person, this is not going to be very long. So just bear with me here. But for those of you who did watch Dexter, we all, it's almost like universally understood that the first four seasons were great. And then it was all kind of downhill from there. That basically after the fourth season, after the season that centered on John Lithgow's Trinity Killer, that really after Trinity, they may as well have just stopped the show because seasons five, six, and seven just didn't live up. And that's, you know, that's no, it's not a mistake. That's not by accident that the quality took like a, a, a significant and actual dip because there was a creative changing on the guard too. The gentleman who ran Dexter, I believe his name is Clyde Phillips. I'm going to just look at it right now because I did make a note of that somewhere. Yeah, Clyde Phillips. Clyde Phillips is the guy who ran Dexter for those first four exquisite seasons. And something that I don't think is getting enough play with the talk of this revival is that it's Clyde Phillips who's creatively overseeing this revival. So to me, that, that, that is the real headline. Because Dexter coming back in and of itself, yeah, it's cool. I, I love that character. I was unsatisfied with the finale. But yeah, it's cool to kind of get to see more of him. But to me, the bigger story is that he's coming back with the creative force of those first four magnificent seasons of television. So that to me, that's the big story. And that's the thing. If you're, if you're following Dexter, if you're thinking about this revival, if you have feelings about this revival, that's just something that I kind of want to hit out there. Cause whenever I mention that to other fellow Dexter fans, no one seems to know that fact about this, that this is going to be done by the guy who gave us the first four seasons, not the one who gave us the last three. So that's, that, that in and of itself is a total game changer for me. And I cannot wait to see what Clyde Phillips does with Dexter back in his care. Um, and just as a little kind of side note, I think it would be cool if Deborah Morgan was his sort of uh, conscience in this one. Remember how in the first series, his father was his conscience, was sort of that, 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 that person he sought for guidance and who helped him figure out what to do with his dark passenger and all that sort of good stuff. Since this revival series is not undoing the final season of Dexter and is basically just following up, you know, eight to 10 years after that finale, I think it would be interesting if now for this phase of Dexter's life, Deborah is who he speaks to when he's having those internal conflicts about what to do with his dark passenger and these urges and these things that he's dealing with. So if you're a Dexter fan, let me know. Let's talk about this because I'm really excited about the revival. But um, okay, now let's get into your questions. The first question today comes from Hristo. How you doing, Hristo, over at the, uh, from the Revengers Lounge on Facebook? Hristo asks, with DC taking the approach to use sub-producing partners for each mini-verse, 
like the Reeves Batman, Gotham PD, or uh, Rock Shazam and Black Adam, or Roven Gun on Squad and Peacemaker? Is it safe to assume that if they can spin entire universes around them, DC can at one point surpass MCU in production numbers per year? Well, Hristo, it's an interesting question because I don't think that's ever been the issue. Whether or not DC can produce as many movies as Marvel does has never been the issue. The issue has been that they at one point had so many movies in production at once that it hindered them from figuring out how best to tell these stories. They were working on four or five or six movies all at the same time, all without knowing how the audience was going to feel about the first one. So imagine here you have, you know, a a slate of, let's say like five movies coming and no one has seen the first one yet, but all of these five are being done with the same central design conceit with the same sort of creative sort of, you know, uh, coming from the same creative architect. So you had all of these things in, in gestation or in production at the same time. And ultimately they decided this is not a smart way to do what we're doing because all of these movies are too interconnected. And if people don't like step one, then they're not even going to make it to step four of this arc, you know? So I think there have been times where DC had, has announced slates where like they were going to be the first ones to have three movies out in a single calendar year. So Hristo, to answer your question, I don't even think the, the, the matter of having these sub producers and having, you know, a producer and a director who work on these little pocket universes, I don't think that that is going to necessarily help or hurt their ability to produce more things. It's more so about the lessons they've learned in these, in the first few years of their DC on film uh, experiment, you know, post man of steel and all that sort of stuff. Based on the lessons they learned then, I think they would much rather, until the brand is completely sort of back up on its feet and there's no more sort of weird dark cloud hanging over it, I think what they're more inclined to do is release these films at a steady clip, but first we have to see if there is an appetite for them and if we should be investing as many dollars as we have been. Because remember, that was part of the problem too. The budgets for a lot of their DC movies were getting very high and the the profit margins were getting really low. You know, there was a reason that they paused things and we went back down to one or two DC movies a year. It wasn't because they couldn't manage it. It's because they were actually being strategic after at first doing way too much to catch up with Marvel. And little by little, sure, I, I don't see how it couldn't happen. I don't see how they don't have a year where there's three DC movies in theaters at once. You know, I, I think we're going to get there eventually. But for now, they're taking a much more conservative approach after what happened in 2016. So, and, and at the latter half of 2017, because even Justice League sort of misfired, right? So they, they've had a lot of reasons to take stock of their decision-making and to decide it behooves us to slow things down a little bit. <laughs> the next question I'm going to take is from Mr. John Folk. 
Hi, John. John asked, do you believe we will see any of the other low-profile pro, low DC movies, such as New Gods or Spielberg's Black Hawks in theaters, HBO Max, or will they never get past development stage? I have a feeling that we will get to see Ava DuVernay's New Gods. Because, I, I mean, she even updated it fairly recently. I think about a month or so ago, she was asked about it, and she said it was still very much in development, getting written, getting, you know. They're getting their ducks in a row on that. But honestly, I don't, I don't think we're going to see a lot of the other ones that were talked about. You know, there, there was a Blue Beetle movie. There was, I mean, at, at one point or other, there were like six or seven different I think there was even Plastic Man. Like there were lots of smaller DC films that at one point or other got a green light or got a, a some sort of thumbs up. Like I, I interviewed Zach Stentz on this very podcast and he gave the update on Booster Gold. You know, he was writing a Booster Gold movie. And even he mentioned at the time that at the studio right now, they're still kind of figuring out what direction they're going to take. And there is a kind of like a lot of stop and start so, and that was like a year ago when I did that interview. So I think a lot of those little films are either not going to happen at all, or if they do happen, they're going to evolve into some sort of TV project for HBO Max, if any of them even do see the light of day. You know, I mean, listen, if it's Steven Spielberg and he comes in with a great idea for that Blackhawks movie and, and it's going to be, you know, they, de they, they determine it's going to be a can't-miss thing, then sure, I could see it coming to theaters. But I really have a feeling that a lot more of the, a lot of those very sort of obscure DC properties that we were hearing about in the years after Justice League, I don't think we're going to see them. I just don't. Up next, we got Isaac Wolf asking, other than The Legend of Zelda... What video game franchise would you like to see adapted? Also, in what style would you like it to be adapted as? TV, movie, animated, or live action? Well, Isaac, obviously, you know Legend of Zelda would be my, my, my dream adaptation. But if I had to think beyond that, I have a few different options. I mean, I, I, I'm a firm believer that the plot for GTA 5, Grand Theft Auto 5, would make for a great TV series on something like Showtime uh, or HBO. Maybe I, I say Showtime because it kind of reminds me a little bit of that, uh, what's his name? Ray Ray Donovan, that, that uh, uh, Leave Schreiber series. I always kind of felt like Ray Donovan feels almost like GTA come to life. But I feel like, yeah, I feel like GTA would make for a great great uh, TV series. Another one, honestly, is one that's already being made. You know, Resident Evil. I think the Resident Evil games deserve a proper adaptation. Not the one that we saw, not the, the, the Paul W.S. Anderson one starring Mila Jovovic that we saw for about 10 years play out there. I want like a legit survival horror, creeping zombie you know, crazy sort of horror movie where you have, you know, you, you have a star who has a lot, who doesn't have a lot of resources and there's a lot of threats that he has to face or she has to face. And it's more of like an actual like horror story with a mystery at its center. 
I would love to see Resident Evil handled the way that those original games were handled as opposed to the movies that we ended up getting. And it sounds like James Wan is preparing to give us some Resident Evil goodness that is much more in line with that. So I'm excited to see what comes of that. Trey Jackson sends in, what's your realistic prediction of us seeing a version of Ayer's Suicide Squad or anything related to Snyder's DCEU beyond Justice League? I'm pretty skeptical of anything new being created in that universe, but I'm always open to being persuaded otherwise. Well, Trey, I think as usual, money talks. This is, an, this is a business where success breeds more success. And so if Zack Snyder's Justice League ends up being this huge boon to HBO Max, I don't think there's any way that it doesn't lead to more. You know, they'd be fools to look at that and go, all right, now we're done. You know, Hollywood is always good, about, is, is good at milking a good idea or good at milking a successful idea. And I think... I think that the Ayer cut really is on the way. And it's because of David Ayer's interactions on Twitter. I've brought this up here on the show before. I even posted a screen grab recently of one of those interactions where he speaks about the Ayer cut being released in such a way that it sounds almost inevitable. And something that I brought up uh, in a recent Twitter discussion with Mauricio Fagundes was that I think he's currently in the stage, Ayer is, I think he's currently in the stage where he's preparing his pitch. And what I mean by that is when the Zack Snyder Justice League thing was announced, I think in like, I don't know, March or April of this year, whenever that was, Snyder revealed that he had spoken with Warner Brothers after the two-year anniversary. In January of 2019, he, you know, they spoke. And they said, okay, basically, why don't you put together your best presentation for what your movie would be, and then we'll decide if we're going to give you the funding to do it. And then he went and did that in like February or something, and they gave him the green light, and then it was announced a month later. So I think Ayer is in that phase of things. I think Ayer is currently getting his cut like redone and remastered and refinished so that he can present it to the executives at Studio Ma at Studio Max, at HBO Max. Because um, something he said recently, too, he, he was speaking with, uh, with one of the, his uh, followers on Twitter. And actually, I, I don't even think this was part of a conversation, but he said something along the lines of, I just watched my cut for the first time in years. And it's such a relief. It's so refreshing. It's such a great realization to note that the movie really does live up to that first trailer, that my vision really was, you know, it, he did pull off what he had been hoping to pull off before the studio came in and changed so much about the movie. So that means that he's actively like he's looking at the footage. He's reviewing what he did. Now, of course, we could just say, all right, fine. He's uh he just did it out of his own personal curiosity. He dug it out of a hard drive and he decided to watch his movie. But when you 
see that comment in conjunction with the fact that he's been telling followers for a while now, oh, you're going to love it, or wait till you see it, or my version is beautiful, can't wait for you to see it. Like he speaks about it as if it's it's coming. So when you think about that, and you think about the fact that he's actually looking at the footage, I get the sense that he's in the state, and, and, and I know that he recently debunked things, right? Because so, someone acted like it was already greenlit, like it was already a done deal. And then he tweeted saying, not true. But that could just as easily be not true yet. Because again, I think he's in that phase where HBO Max said, okay, why don't you put together what you think you can do with this movie and let's reconvene in a few months. And I assume after that happens, if he gets that green light, it's suddenly going to be very true. So, and back to your more overall question, Trey. Yeah, I think that there's a very real possibility that there will be more stories to tell within this once discarded leg of the DCEU. But to me, it's interesting, though, because then you also run the risk of... You know, part of what made Zack Snyder's Justice League being official, part of what made that news such a big deal was that, look, now we're, we're no longer stuck with that question of what might have been. We no longer have to worry. Now we're, you know, we're going to see in actuality what had been planned, right? That sense of like finality, that closure was part of what was going to make this satisfying and exciting. But... If this movie is, you know, or rather this miniseries event, if Zack Snyder's Justice League ends up sticking in a lot of stuff that's to tease for future series or future movies, what if those don't get made? What if this doesn't, you know, provide HBO Max with a huge boon? What if this doesn't lead, you know, what if this doesn't inspire the studio heads to go, oh, well, we need more of this. If that doesn't happen, then we're back where we left off, where we have a thing that Zack Snyder gave us that's filled with all of these teases and the first building blocks of these much larger arcs, but we're not going to actually see them come through to fruition. You know, so it's a very delicate subject. It's a very, you know, he's going to have to walk a very fine line where if he is teasing other things and if the air cut of Suicide Squad seems to tease other things, if you're not going to deliver on those other things, we're back where we started, wondering what might have been. So that is a danger that they're going to have to figure out. So I suggest they either figure out if they can, they either figure out if they're going to be given the opportunity to tell further stories in this universe. They should try to figure that out before they release these things. Because I'm telling you right now, if there's teases for stuff that we may or may not get, I'm going to be really freaking frustrated again. And CJ asked, Following up on Zack Snyder's Justice League, what impact would that have on the shared part of the DC universe, the Flash film, etc.? See, that's a question I have, too. I'm very intrigued by the fact that Jason Momoa and Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman and possibly Henry Cavill's Superman and obviously 
uh, Ezra Miller's, you know, Barry, all of those heroes are going to have a continued life on the big screen. So if they're doing interesting alternate things on HBO Max through Zack Snyder's Justice League, what are we as fans supposed to make of the canon if there is one? And I think it's going to come down to some creative storytelling in that Flash movie. I think if there's a way for that movie to hit home the point that all of that Zack Snyder stuff is happening on another one of the Earths, if they can somehow do that in a clever, easy-to-digest way, then I think that's the answer. I think that's what's going to end up happening, that they're going to find a way to make clear that Zack Snyder's Justice League, that David Ayer's Suicide Squad, and possibly Ben Affleck's Batman, that all of that stuff is existing in its own pocket alternate universe, whereas this stuff is happening on a completely different one, in a completely different Earth. I think that's going to be what they try to do. I don't know how you make this make sense. I mean, it, it is going to be very bizarre, isn't it? It's going to be very bizarre that in September of 2021, we're going to be seeing Zack Snyder's Justice League while there is a Batman movie on the way that has nothing to do with it, while there's a Flash movie there that, you know, kind of does, but kind of doesn't. And there's, you know, Henry Cavill is possibly going to be showing up in Shazam sequels or in Black Adam sequels. You know, there is going to be this weird thing where audiences are going to be like, well, wait a minute. Why does the Superman on HBO Max act differently than the Superman on the big screen? You know, there's going to definitely be a potential for confusion. But I think a lot of it is going to come down to the way that the Flash movie handles it. Because if they're going to be very smart and show him visiting different Earths, and that's how we get to meet Michael Keaton's Batman, and you know th there have been hints that there are other older versions of these heroes that he's going to encounter. If they do that strategically and in a smart, concise, clever way to show that Barry visits one of the Earths and that's where all the Snyder stuff is happening, but that he leaves that Earth and the rest of his story takes place elsewhere, I think that is a good way to sort of position this as what's happening on HBO Max is just stuff that's happening in an alternate dimension. You can worry about it if you want, or you can totally disregard it. So CJ, to answer your question, you know, I don't think the Zack Snyder movies, you know, or the, the HBO Max stuff that's coming is going to impact the big screen offerings. But I think the big screen offerings are going to find a way to justify and explain what's happening, what's happening on HBO Max to an extent. You know, does that make any sense? I mean, th this is all going to be weird. This is all very sort of um, uncharted territory. So we'll see how it goes. I'm just as skeptical and just as sort of curious about how this is going to pan out as you are, CJ. Um, Nick Zednik, Papa, Papa Nick. Papa Zednik asked me if you could change one casting and one story in any DCEU movie, what would they be and why? Well, this may come as a shock to you, Zach, but I wouldn't recast anyone. I think the casting in the DCEU has been top flight. 
I think, you know, for, for all of the crap I've given Zack Snyder over the years for different creative decisions he's made, I've never complained about, complained about his casting choices. I think he's, you know, he had a great eye for casting. I think James Wan had a great eye for casting. I think Patty Jenkins had a great eye for casting, as did David Ayer. There's really no one. Oh, actually, now that I mention it, <laughs> that changes everything. Thinking about David Ayer. I guess I would probably cast someone different for Enchantress. I don't think Cara Delevingne or Dev I don't know how the hell you say her name. I, I don't think she necessarily had the chops to make Enchantress the, uh, the villain that she could have been. But I'm not going to, you know, if I'm not pushing for it. It barely stands in my mind. In general, I'm very happy with, like, almost all of the castings in the DCEU. So I wouldn't change a casting. But if I could change a story, I mean, it's the central story of BVS. I would want to present the story in such a way that the conflict between Batman versus Superman feels much more organic and relatable. All I know is the way they presented it in BVS... To me, it never really, in a satisfying way, justified why these two heroes, who at their cores are good people, would suddenly be at each other's throats and want to kill each other the way that they do for a time in the movie. To me, it just, it didn't feel, it didn't feel fleshed out enough or warranted or earned. So I would want to take another crack at the conflict between Batman and Superman that leads to how they confront each other. And I would also structure that story differently so that we don't have to go almost two hours of watching a fight that we know is ultimately going to lead to a team-up. It kind of takes a lot of the tension out of the way when you know that, okay, they're investing all of this time and energy into why these two guys hate each other now. But we know that they're not going to keep hating each other. We know they're going to be, you know, team teaming up by before the credits roll. These guys are going to be on the same page. So rather than drag out that fight for two hours, I would find a way to to build and build and and and, and execute the central conflict between them, but then pivot sooner into the story, into the team up part of it. I think that might have uh, saved that movie in the eyes of a lot of fans and a lot of general audiences who still, after the movie ended, still couldn't quite understand why were these two good guys fighting? You know, there's a lot of people who just never quite got it. And I think it's because the way it was handled was sort of convoluted and contrived and indirect and it took up way too much of the running time, considering we all knew there's no way these guys are actually going to fight to the death. And they're going to ultimately, because Trailer 2 spoiled it, they're going to go and fight Doomsday by the end of this. So it was just, you know, I think I would love to rewrite the central conflict. But who knows? I'm seeing BVS tonight, Nick. So who knows? Maybe I'm going to see it tonight. And I, it's going to be like what happened with Man of Steel. And I'm going to go, oh, my God, don't change a thing. This is great. You know, who knows? <laughs> um, and let's see. The last question I will take for today is Chris Roach. Chris Roach said, 
Do you think Reeves will take on his own more grounded DC cinematic universe at some point, or will his focus remain on the Batman characters exclusively? I keep going back and forth on this, says Chris. Uh, Right now, I mean, listen, it's hard to tell, right? We're not inside his head. But based on everything I've seen from fandom and his plans for Gotham PD, it seems to me like Reeves has a very sort of singular focus. He is excited to tell his Batman stories and build out his Batman world. I do not see Reeves trying to venture outside of Gotham. I think he's going to keep his focus right then and there. I think this is the type of filmmaker who, you know, he has lots of different stories he wants to tell. If you look at his filmography, this is a guy who's told all, he's told vampire stories. He's done Planet of the Apes. He did a big freaking monster movie with Cloverfield with a found footage conceit. This is a guy who likes to test himself and try new things. So I don't expect now that he's going to spend the next 10 or 15 years building out the DC universe. I think we're going to be lucky while we have him. I think he's going to possibly deliver a phenomenal Batman trilogy as well as a companion TV series. And who knows, maybe he'll get inspired and do an, you know, a spin-off or two from within these Batman movies, maybe you know exploring more of what's going on with Catwoman. Who knows? Or, you know, Remember years ago, there was a Nightwing thing, but I don't think Nightwing really factors into his grounded universe or the stories he's trying to tell. But, you know, I guess my point is, could he get inspired and make a few more, you know, Bat-centric stories within his Batman movies? Sure. But I don't see him venturing outside of Gotham. So... We'll see if I'm right. We'll see if I'm wrong. But right now, this man's focus seems to be on one thing and one thing alone, and that's probably a blessing. And that one thing is Batman. And I'll take it. And that about does it for me. So I hope you enjoyed this week's show. Leave me some feedback. And until next week, life is chaos. Be kind. Adios. Adios.